Welcome to episode 45 of Mental Health by TalkLink. Here's what's coming up. Immediately after I pulled the trigger, I felt an instant regret. I, quite frankly, don't remember feeling any pain. I just remember the intensity of that feeling of regret. Hi, I'm Rowan, and today we're speaking with Emma Benoit, who shares her own personal journey. At 16, Emma shot herself in an attempted suicide, and she was left paralyzed. She's now 21 and a passionate mental health advocate, and she takes us on a journey of what led up to her attempt, the event itself, her thought processes immediately afterwards, her recovery, and ultimately her role now in advocating for suicide awareness. We specifically decided to share Emma's story now as it's Suicide Prevention Week this week. We'll include some resources in the show notes and hopefully Emma's story can lend some positive weight in this battle. Today's podcast is brought to you by talklink.com.au, a modern and approachable mental health directory, helping Australians connect with the right mental health practitioner. All of the practitioners, so that's psychologists, counsellors and psychotherapists, are available to see clients straight away. There are no waiting lists. They're all independent, licensed and insured, and can see clients in person or online. The great thing about TalkLink is that you can see a short video of the therapists to get to know them a little, check out their training and experience, as well as their pricing in a transparent way to decide if this is someone that you would like to connect with. Okay, let's dive in. Hi Emma, it's great to meet you. Nice to meet you as well. How are you doing today? Yeah, real good. Um... You know, Emma, I I watched your documentary last night, My Ascension, and um, it was incredibly powerful. And so I'm really looking forward to this conversation. But maybe let's just let's just start right at the beginning. It's your story, so um, why don't you start walking us through it wherever you're comfortable? Yeah, well, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, so, kind of my story begins back when I was in elementary school. So I had a, I suffered. Well, let me rephrase that. Um, it's a lot harder to do this than I thought. Um, sorry. I'm so sorry. Just bear with me, please. That's okay. Take your time. Mm. There's just so much valence in your story. Um, that I, I just wanted to know at the end, like, how do you keep telling such a you and me both now huh (laughs) how do you keep telling such a heavy story and something that obviously has so much pain to you still with your family and you just keep you just keep reliving the story so many times and you're so young emma um i wanted to know at the end why do you keep doing this? It's clearly painful to you. In your doco, you were crying. You're crying right now. I'm crying. Um, why do you keep doing this to yourself? I think part of me just understands what it's like to have these feelings. Like I'm having right now, obviously. I'm having a really hard day. Um and I just get it. And so being an empath, I just feel other people's feelings so deeply. And so knowing this type of kind of hurt, I just feel for others to just a really big level. And it's almost like, kind of like a sacrifice, if you will, like a self-sacrifice, if you will, in a way, because um, I know that it can do. I know kind of the overall bigger positive picture of sharing my story um but it's yeah it's really hard to do um and obviously some days are better than others some days are a lot easier than others um as you can tell clearly I'm not having the easiest day today but I think one of the biggest reasons that I do this is because I know what it feels like to be like this right now but I also know on the flip side kind of what it's like to not feel like this and to be um, in a place where you feel so mentally well and capable um, of going through life. So it's, it's a constant 
process of mixed emotions as to why I continue doing this and pouring my myself out in this way. Um, but yeah, that's why. Well, I think it's incredibly courageous. Um, and I can only imagine, you know, the, the weight of what you're carrying. I think, I think this is really what courage looks like to me. I finished watching your story and I thought if I had to put a word on what you're doing, it's, it's courageous. Um, cause I can see that weighing down on you. So, um, you know, thank you for reliving this and, and sharing it and hopefully helping some listeners who would possibly be finding themselves in a similar place or family struggling with making sense of what happened or even clinicians trying to help people navigate through this. When I, when I watch the story, like you, your story starts with this bright eyed, what seems to be a bright eyed, bushy tailed, beautiful young woman. You know, you've got these incredible eyes um, you've got this beautiful smile. Um, you, you're doing backflips at one point. <laughs> yeah, I was a little bit of a tumbler there in my yeah. youth. Um, but yeah, it, I, that's just the thing, though. I, on the outside, my life appeared perfect. I mean, I had what everyone told me they envied. You know, um, a picture perfect family, a popularity, um, external beauty, all these things that people seem to envy and kind of adore about someone I had. And so on the outside, I seem to have everything, every reason to be grateful and always happy and never have a problem or really a negative feeling or emotion. But that, that scenario really did trap me because, because I had this seemingly perfect external appearance and the internal wasn't always leveling up to that, that really is what ultimately wrecked me. And I think was a huge factor in my mental spiral and my mental and emotional downfall. Um, Because, you know, growing up, mental health was never talked about. It wasn't something that I was aware existed, really. Um, No one in my family or inner circle really had ever expressed any feeling or problem or really, I never heard about suicide. It was just something, honestly, that you hear about in movies and on the news. It's just stuff that happens to other people and their families. But, you know, growing up in that type of environment, experiencing all those, not experiencing all those things, yet feeling all those feelings and struggling with my own mental health, that put me in a position where I felt confused, lost, and alone. And being that the outside looked so perfect, but the inside wasn't, I was very conflicted because I didn't have an understanding of what mental health looked like. And so I didn't know that my mental health was really deteriorating and really was struggling. I could not associate my mental and emotional struggles to that of my mental health. And so I was very much conflicted and in what looked like a useless battle, honestly. Um, oh gosh, it was such a, it's a challenging space because if I hear you speak and if I, you know, we'll, we'll talk about your documentary. I, I want to really dive into that. But on, on the doco, you come across as such an articulate, strong communicator. Like if I had to look at all the skills you have, I would absolutely put strong communication down as one of your strengths. I mean, you're nodding, so I'm, I'm assuming I don't know you, but you're, you're agreeing yeah. with that. So yeah, um, definitely. what happened, why or how um, did that break down? And, and did you talk to your friends and your family or was it just nothing? And with the benefit of hindsight, like, have you dug through that a bit more? Yeah, definitely. And I'm glad that you pointed that out because that's honestly now, I've, that's one of my strong suits is communication and articulation of speech. And I really do you know, kind of pride myself on the fact that I can express my feelings and my thoughts in a very articulate way. And I've always kind of been like that, like you said, you saw back in the documentary. Um, but the thing was, I was always good at communicating, but never good at understanding those types of thoughts and feelings. Because because of the fact that my life was so ordinarily perfect, I felt guilty and I felt wrong and shameful for having those types of thoughts and feelings. And anytime that I would try to speak about it. I wouldn't, 
I didn't have the language to really explain what I was feeling. And I felt like no one would really understand me. No one's going to be able to really get what I'm saying to even be able to begin to help me with my problem. So what's the point of even trying? So that was kind of my frame of mind at the time was even if I were to speak up and share how I felt, people would not understand me. No one would get me um, because I'm alone. No one, no one in my life, no one in my circle can really relate to me. Um, because like I said, mental health was not something that was talked about. My friends and the adults in my life really, quite frankly, never expressed any mental health issues or challenges. I mean, my mom is really just about the only person that I can recall having anxiety. Um, and that was kind of the intro into my understanding of our mental health and how it works. Um, but other than that, it wasn't something that I really had a whole bunch of knowledge on to really begin to talk about. And, you know, you, you would think that I would just begin sharing how I was feeling and expressing these thoughts and feelings. But when I tell you, if someone who's struggling to that degree of with their mental health, and they're not aware that that's what they're struggling and fighting with, their brain, or my brain, I can't only speak from my experience, but from my experience, my brain truly wasn't allowing me to see things the way they were. So I was feeling all these ways. And then on top of that, feeling guilty for feeling that way about my life, um, not good enough, not pretty enough, not smart enough, even though externally and everyone around me thought, sure, you are, you're more than enough, you know, but I didn't feel that way. And despite all of the validation that I received, it didn't really penetrate because I was so self-conscious and so insecure and so unsure of my future and myself that anything that anyone would ever have ever said would have just gone in one ear and out the other. So when it came time to me really breaking down and resting the way I felt about myself, I would always stop myself mentally because I would tell myself, they're not going to understand. They're not going to get it. They're going to think a number of things. They're going to think you're looking for attention. Um, you know, everything that I thought they would think led me to not speaking up and reaching out for help. I was afraid of being judged. I was afraid of people um, viewing me in a different way. I didn't want people to look at me as someone who is somewhat quote unquote tainted, if you will. That was kind of my mentality when it came to someone who openly discusses their feelings and talks about their emotions. Because like I said, growing up, that wasn't something that was very present in my environment or, or around me in life. No one really talked about their feelings um, to that level. And, you know, you just kind of pushed them down, sucked them up and just kind of kept trucking along. So that's kind of why I never felt comfortable um, using language and verbiage to, to express how I felt. One of the things that you've said um, that really hit me was you felt like you would have removed a burden from your family by taking your life and you didn't want to overwhelm them with your issues. That really struck me. Was that thinking part of it and how much did that sort of theme? Yeah, that was that was actually on the day of that was like one of the, the bigger parts of it. That was one of the, that was one of the driving forces that was like, you know what, this is what everyone needs. Um, was just mainly because my home life was soiling. I mean, growing up, I had a great relationship with my mom and dad. I was my dad's little baby girl and my mom's best friend. And it was like that pretty consistently until I began to struggle with my mental health. And I just felt like, in my high school years, because of my mental health, unknowingly, I began to rebel. I began to start, you know, doing things that I would have otherwise had no interest in doing, hanging out with new people. I decided to not try out for the cheer squad, which prior to that cheerleading had been my pretty much my whole life and my one passion. Um, so all of these things in my life just started to stack on top of one another. And my parents being the loving and supporting parents that they are, were just concerned. And not knowing the depths of what they were dealing with, they it caused tension and it caused fights and arguments with my mom and dad. And it felt like I was always in conflict with them and I could never win. And it was just another day, another battle. 
with my parents. And being someone who is an empath, I am an empathic soul. And my mom and dad are my entire heart. They have always been a huge piece of my heart. And to know that my behaviors and things that I was doing, the rebels that I was doing were hurting them um, and disappointing them. That was like huge for me. I felt like I'd failed them. Truly. I felt like I failed my mom and dad and thought that they thought that they failed me because of this type of lifestyle that I was leading at the time. And, you know, when you're a 16 year old kid, you don't really have the life experience to be able to kind of range and, you know, not prioritize, but I guess rank, if you will, different experiences and, you know, a seemingly small experience, negative experience to an adult is a huge deal to a teenager. And, you know, so the times that I would be getting in trouble while my parents knew that it was going to be okay, we were going to work it through. She's going to figure it out. I did it. I felt like it was the end of the world. Like, oh my gosh, I'm a terrible person. I'm a horrible kid. My parents don't deserve me. You know, all of these negative self-deprecating thoughts and feelings would just immediately come to surface. Yeah. Um, you mentioned something as well that, that was quite telling. I thought um, you talked about the catastrophizing thought patterns you had sort of in the lead up to that. And you know, one of the experts, I don't want to give away too much from his show, but there was just so much uh, from your documentary, there's just so much insight there. One of the scientists was talking about the fact that as an adolescent, your prefrontal cortex hasn't formed. And so that means, you know, a young person's thinking tends to be very black and white. And you shared a a series of thoughts or or, um, ruminating thought patterns that you had of where it was like a cascade, like, if one thing doesn't go to plan, then this won't work, that won't work, that won't work. And all of a sudden, you know, my life is a mess and I can't pull it together and I can't see a way of getting out of this. And so the, the pain sort of started layering and building and putting pressure on you. Is that a fair understanding of, of some of the other parts of what was going on? Definitely. That was def- that's, that's absolutely accurate, to be honest with you. I mean, pretty much my entire high school existence, I can remember every negative thing or everything that didn't go my way or the way that I wanted it to go, I would immediately catastrophize and begin to spiral mentally. And that happened with big things, small things. I mean, you name it, just about every scenario that I experienced walking through those years, I would somehow find a way or my brain, should I say, would somehow find a way to make the worst of it and harp on the worst case scenario. And that was so mentally exhausting, um, you know, living like that. And it became so normal that it felt almost habitual to think that way and always look to the worst case scenario. And, you know, yeah, all these things could go right, but that one thing that could go wrong is going to ruin my spirits about said thing. So it's very accurate in terms of kind of my brain patterns and the way that I used to think for sure. And it definitely was a factor in, you know, the lead up to me making the actual attempt. So how much of the attempt are you comfortable in sharing? I think it contextualizes your journey and your fight from that point on. Um, but to, to whatever extent you're prepared to share, we'd, we'd love to understand that context. Yeah, definitely. I'm, I'm, I'm for sure open to share about the suicide attempt itself um, because I think it is the most pivotal point in my entire story as a whole. So it's definitely something that I want to talk about and want to share about. Can you walk us through that? Yeah, definitely. So like I said, um, I obviously had been struggling for years on end um, unknowingly because mental health was not a thing and I wasn't aware that what I was experiencing was mental health challenges and and mental illnesses. Um, And so the summer before my senior year of high school, I was actually invited on a trip to New York City with a local photographer. And to give some context as to where I was at mentally during this time, I had, like I said, been in constant battles with my parents, um, always in trouble with them. I had decided not to try out for cheerleading. Um, I was hanging out with new people. 
rebelling, doing a lot of things that I wasn't interested in before. All of those factors were kind of my reality at the time. And so getting asked to be a part of this trip in New York City was a huge confidence boost for me. It really skyrocketed the way I felt about myself, you know, what I deserved, my worth. And I was really excited about it. And so that put me on uh, a new track of feeling at the time. Um, and I kind of felt like I had shifted gears a little bit and moved on to, you know, the trajectory to feeling mentally well and ha happy again. Um, and so I went on the trip and there were eight girls on the trip. And some of those girls I had never met before in my life. So I didn't feel the need to really put on a mask or protect myself or anything like that, which prior I had been doing, um, like I said, struggling with my mental health, not knowing that, but feeling down about struggling with my mental health because of the external image that was, that was out there. Um, I was just kind of masking all of my pain and suppressing all of my emotions and being on that trip. I didn't feel a need to do any of that because like I said, I was, it was just an honor to be asked to be a part of that trip. And so I went on the trip and had a blast and really felt like all of my joy had came back to me. It felt like the first time for in a long time, I wasn't weighed down by any problems or pressures or struggles or anything that I was dealing with back at home. I could just live free and be me. And honestly, I was, it felt like I was on a high of life and coming home from that trip. It was a really short trip. It was just an extended weekend. Um, but when I came home from that trip, it felt like, everything all at once just came crashing straight on me. And for whatever reason, that day, um, I just couldn't do it anymore. I felt like nothing is going to get better. Um, everything is just hard. I am not capable of fixing my problems. I'm not capable of living the life my parents want me to live. You know, the direction that they desired for me was not the direction that I wanted at the time. Um, and, you know, I was having all of these conflicting feelings about my future, about college and, you know, having my senior year coming up and all of these things were just in my head all at once. And it kind of felt like rapid fire thoughts were just approaching. And just when those thoughts were coming, as I spoke about, my brain would begin to catastrophize on those thoughts and I would just spiral into the worst case scenario. And it was just a constant feeling and thought pattern of hopelessness. And the day was June 7th of 2017. And I remember it very clearly. I woke up and I just felt like crud. I did not feel good. I didn't want to get out of bed. I didn't even want to brush my teeth or my hair or anything. I just wanted to melt to the bed. And I remember I had been in trouble from a previous incident. Um, that had taken place. And I had been talking to my mom pretty frequently on and off throughout the day. Um, just she was just trying to help me out, just trying to help me navigate my new life, you know, because the summertime is when cheerleading practice really took hold. And me not being on the team, I was home alone with no real responsibilities, no real things to do. Um, so my mom was just really worried about me. And so I had been talking to her um, on the phone and at the time she was working at a job where she had to place me on hold whenever other people would call she had to answer to the she was the first line basically um and so we had been talking and she had to put me on hold to take another call and it was in a matter of those minutes that i made the decision to take my life um i remember it very clearly, I remember hearing the hold music and I'm like, you know what? I need this. This can't go on anymore. Like I am at a loss. I don't know what to do, how to help myself. I don't even know how to begin to tell my mom that I feel this way. I'm not going to tell my mom that I feel this way and want to take my life. That would ruin her. Um, I, I can't. How can I give this information to them? So there's just all those feelings on top of the feelings of, you know, not being good enough and feeling like there was no way out and no solution to my feelings or my problems. All of those feelings just kind of culminated in that one moment. And in that instant, I acted on it and I imp impulsively 
very impulsively made the decision. And like I said, in those, in those few minutes, um, and I attempted to take my own life. I used a firearm to attempt suicide and that left me with some pretty, pretty lifelong injuries. And the journey afterwards has been, well, quite, quite the whirlwind to say the least. Um, wow. Um, immediately after the the attempt emma did you have consciousness and what were your thoughts as you tried to make sense of what was going on so i remember immediately after i pulled the trigger i felt an instant regret that is the only thing that i remember feeling i quite frankly don't remember feeling any pain um physical pain I just remember the intensity of that feeling of regret. And it was almost like in the instant that it happened, all of the thoughts that I wish would have came to surface were there. All of the reasons why I had made a mistake were shown to me. And it's crazy what that experience, what that experience kind of felt like. Um, it's really unexplainable. It, it really shook me to the core to feel all of the things that I feel so strongly now and my reasons to fight and live and persevere and push through. Those feelings were so intense within me that I felt like those feelings really did help me fight for my life and kept me here truly. And I mean, my injuries were so severe. They are typically fatal medically medical standards. That's a typically fatal injury. I actually severed my carotid artery um, on the left side of my neck. And so the bullet entered through my neck, my chest and exited um, just below the base of my spine. So um, the fact that, you know, it didn't do much more severe damage um, is a miracle in and of itself. But I think what really stands out to me is the fact that that regret was that strong of a feeling that I don't remember the pain because I was conscious for a few minutes after the attempt happened. I remember seeing, and I, I obviously I remember seeing very hazy, but I remember being conscious for a few moments after. I remember my mom coming back on the phone line. And her picking up the phone saying, hey, Emma, it's me, I'm back. And me not answering and her saying, Emma, are you there? And obviously I wasn't able to answer. And she said, stay right there. I'm coming home. Don't move. And just like that, my mom immediately left her office. And she said she just had mother's intuition, a bad feeling in her gut. And she said she just picked up everything and left. And she sped home. And at the time, my mom was working about, 15 minutes from our house, 20 to 15, 20 to 15 minutes from our house. And I remember home. I remember hearing the garage door open. I remember hearing my dog barking profusely. I remember seeing my mom coming into the room and falling onto her knees and saying, Oh my gosh, Oh my gosh, just keep breathing. Um, so I remember all of those moments. But the fact that that regret was that that intense to kind of shield me from any physical pain, I think is pretty powerful. I mean, obviously, um, I'm not sure the science that goes into something like that, but I really think it's pretty, pretty powerful that that's the number one thing that I remember is that feeling of regret. Is there anything that anyone could have done or said in the lead up to that event? that could have changed the course of the action? I'm sure this is the thing that plagues all your friends and families right now, but um, I'm sure there's a lot of people listening and it's it's cutting very close to the bone for many. Is there anything that someone could have done or said? I think the number one thing that really would have helped me in my experience would have been if someone would have mentioned the word suicide, if someone would have just openly asked me the question, are you struggling with suicidal thoughts? Have you ever had thought of harming yourself? Um, but furthermore, I think just having the open and non-judgmental topic of mental health on the table would have been a huge start for me. 
Um, I think all of the years prior, in my experience, really did negatively affect that that experience. I really think that all of those years prior to me and me struggling um, is really what led to that day and that attempt itself. So I think that having people in my environment or in my space comfortable talking about their feelings, openly ex- expressing you know experiences that they've had with their mental health, and not being ashamed of it, not writing it off as you know weak or taboo. I think having that, I guess, just that, that environment around me or that feeling around me, it, I really fully believe that had that experience been different for me, things would have looked different for me because I wouldn't have felt ashamed of my feelings. I wouldn't have felt like opening up was a bad thing and that I was a bad person or, or weak for feeling that way. Um, and really and truly, I wish that suicide was more talked about in, in my life and around me. Because after my suicide attempt, I learned of relatives that have suffered suicide attempts that I had no idea about. I had no clue that close relatives had experienced these things and had struggled to that degree with their mental health. Yet I did too, and none of us knew. So the fact that, you know, that wasn't a thing for me, I really felt, feel like it, 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 it contributed. Um, So I think that's the overall thing that would have greatly helped me um, is just that topic being invited to the table openly and non non-judgmentally. And if the conversation about suicide would have been more of an approachable conversation to have, you know, because a lot of the reasons why I never told anyone that I was having those types of thoughts was because of the association that people have with suicide, you know, that it's, a coward's way out, that it's selfish, that it's wrong. Um, you know, how dare you take your life? You know, you mean, you, do you know how many other people would be affected? You know, that type of mentality. Um, and so that, that kind of steered me away from even wanting, from me even wanting to admit I felt that way. Um, so I think just having a conversation about suicide look different and be more understanding and compassionate and just overall supportive in a way would be um, something that could have made a difference. I know you, you've you've shared your personal experience here and, and what was going through your mind and um, what would have helped you. You're playing a, a really powerful role of a voice in the public space at the moment. And I think that would possibly place you in a very unique position where you're having other people confide all kinds of things in you. And so in that capacity where you're hearing from other people their own struggles and you're hearing their stories, how do those stories compare to yours? What are some of the similarities between other people struggling with suicidal ideas or attempts and maybe what are some of the differences? Are there themes that you can pull out of it that that you can that you see across your experience? Yeah, definitely. That's a good question too, because that is something that I that I get a lot is people sharing their stories and their shared experiences with me, which is what I want. I want people to feel like they can come to me and be able to find a sense of relatability and community within me. Um, I think it's one of the most beautiful things and gifts that we have as humans is connectivity and relate things that we can relate on. Um, But as far as parallels and trends, certainly there are definitely pretty much across the board, no matter what a person's experience looks like, there are similarities. Um, One of the biggest similarities that I've seen is just overall hopelessness. This idea that we cannot overcome this season. We cannot work through whatever it is we're dealing with. Um, And that's a trend. I mean, that's a feeling that I felt very deeply kind of to my core. Um, And it was kind of rooted from that catastrophizing type thinking, right? Like where I was like, oh, well, even if all these could be positively true, some of these negatives are more important, more heavy, you know, they stand out more than the positives, if you will. Um, But hopelessness is definitely a trend. Also, people who feel lack of purpose. That was something that I was dealing with. And I see a lot, if not 
all than majority of people express that they just feel like they don't really have a place, like they don't have a purpose. Um, conflicting feelings about, you know, their reason for being here and the meaning of life. I mean, these are all things that humans in general have fostered over and thought over for the, as long as time has been. But um, hopelessness and purposelessness are two of the major trends that I've seen. Um, and, and lack of feeling accepted, that too. Because, you know, acceptance is huge for humans. I mean, we, we crave acceptance. I know I do, or I did um, at least. But acceptance, lack of acceptance is something that people tend to struggle with greatly. And that's pretty, pretty typical um, that I see. I mean, I think your your story is um, incredibly powerful because after that point, with these awful injuries, you you now do a few things. You go on the journey of recovery, physically, um, emotionally, psychologically, um, relationally with your family, and then you also have this. Um, you, you know, you seem so convicted in wanting to share your story and help others, and you've done that by launching this incredible documentary, My Ascension. Um, which was directed by Greg Dachari. And yeah, I watched it last night. It's just so impactful. And at the end, I want to share how some of our listeners can maybe um, view that as well. You're you're basically going on, you know, a public speaking tour. Maybe we can get you to Australia even. You know, I'm sure there's a lot of people listening from all around the world. And, um, uh, you know, if you're open to that, I think you're an incredible, relatable voice. Um, maybe take us through some of that journey of the physical recovery first. Yeah. So the initial injuries were, so I severed my carotid artery, as I said, and the internal bleeding from that damage caused a large blood clot to form. And it was pressing down on my spinal cord, which caused a spinal cord injury. Initially, when I left the hospital, I was diagnosed a C4 quadriplegic and was suffering from um, Broca's aphasia, which is a type of aphasia that happens um, due to strokes, which I had suffered several strokes during surgery to repair that artery with a stent. Um, so I was dealing with not only the spinal cord injury, but also the um, brain damage from the strokes that I had suffered as well. And so that journey was quite difficult. It was one of the most challenging journeys that I've had to walk, going from being a fully functional, very active, athletic 16-year-old girl to having all of those abilities stripped away from me and becoming completely reliant on others to exist. Um, When I was brought to the uh, rehab hospital to begin physical therapy and occupational therapy, I could not even hold my neck up on my own. I was in a a power chair, power-operated wheelchair, with a neck brace and a body brace and all these things. And I was on so many different medications for muscle spasms and neuropathy and all of these things. Um, but the physical journey is one that I learned so much about myself, about, you know, what, what blessings we have um, every single day that we all take for, that we take for granted. Um, and I was really shown kind of, all of these more important things um, at a very young age. And it really was one of the more humbling journeys to walk, um, losing all of my abilities and, you know, needing the help of others to do just about everything. But after about three months, I was had a three month stay in the rehab hospital. Um, and I worked really hard in physical therapy and occupational therapy doing a series of different exercises and movement simulators and machines and all these different things, um, I was able to refire my connections and regain mobility and feeling in my body. That was actually one of the first things that came back was the feeling. And it was like the best day ever. I wanted to throw a party um, because I can remember, um, you know, feeling again. So it's interesting whenever you lose mobility and feeling, Um, from my experience, at least, it kind of feels similar to hitting your funny bone um, on something. It kind of, you have that very numb, tingling sensation, and it kind of is painful a little bit. That was the feeling that was present from the neck down for me for months. 
And so it was very uncomfortable, very painful. The medications only did so much in masking that feeling. Um, but I remember when the feeling came back, I was like on cloud nine. I remember it started in my toes and it worked its way up. And I could just remember being so grateful that I can feel again and, and just not have the pain with sensation and, you know, having people touch me and it was painful. Um, so that was the first thing that returned. And then just with hard work and perseverance and a lot of, a lot of great help through my therapist, I was able to get my legs moving again and get my upper body working and strong again. And I've since been able to regain just about majority of my abilities. I say about 80% of my abilities have returned. I can now walk on a walker and I do daily. Um, I live independently. I can drive my car with no adaptations, which was another huge success for me. Um, you know, I didn't know what that would look like for me. And being 16, I had just gotten my license. So it was a huge, like, you know, punch to the gut. I was like, oh my gosh, like, seriously, I can't drive now. Um, but so that was a huge achievement for me to be able to get back behind the steering wheel um, with no adjustments or adaptations to my vehicle. I can drive a car um, with my hands and feet. So um, yeah, I'm doing really well physically and I'm very grateful, but it, it wasn't easy. It definitely took a lot of hard work and determination, lots of, lots of ups, lots of downs, lots of down downs, um, lots of hard nights, lot, many, many a tears were shed, many a tears were shed. Um, but yeah, overall quite, quite the journey, but very humbling to say the least. Hmm. And so you're on this journey now where you want to share your story and you want to help other people. And I think that that's, that becomes really clear in the documentary on how you are helping people. Um, I mean, you're, just, you're such an incredibly relatable young person. You're, you're what, 21 now? Mm -hmm. Yeah, 21. Right. Um, what do you do for yourself? Some of our listeners are actually mental health professionals working in the field, you know, psychologists, counselors, psychotherapists, psychiatrists. You're obviously taking on, you're, you're an empath, you said, right? So you're obviously taking on a, a lot of load and a lot of burden, a lot of pain from other people. What do you do for yourself on a day-to-day -day basis to just stay healthy and stay in the right place so that you can continue playing that, that servitude role, that support role, but also not go down with the ship? Yeah, I'm glad you pointed that out because that's something that I had to kind of learn kind of the hard way in doing this type of work. I didn't realize just quite how emotionally draining um, this type of work can be, especially for an empath. Um, so I initially, when I started doing this work, I became burned out really quickly. Um, but I've had to kind of learn what works for me and something that I do on a daily basis. I'm so glad that you asked about kind of my daily practices to keep my mental health at bay and keep my mental wellness like at a good level. Um, every single day I have a routine in the morning. And that's something that is crucial for me. I find that if I don't do a routine in the morning, I tend to stay in bed longer. I tend to get less done during the day. And I just don't feel as good. I don't feel as productive. I don't feel like I've really accomplished anything. Um, and so I like to get up in the morning and I like to wash my face and do my skincare routine. I know skincare is a big deal right now. Um, I love it. It really does make me feel so good about myself and confident and like I'm taking care of myself. Um, so that's a good way I like to nurture myself. And, and um, I do that pretty much every single day. And then I will come to my kitchen and I'll make my coffee and I will sit down on my couch and I will, I have several books that I just flip through. I pick whichever one I feel like looking through that day. And I just flip through the book. And before I really start looking on my phone or start scrolling on social media, I like to just be present and just read um, whatever it is. I read anything, honestly, whatever's in front of me that I feel like reading, but that doing that daily really has made such a big difference for me. And I really encourage people to maybe try it if they're feeling kind of like, you know, they're just in a, in a, in a funk or um, are looking for new ways to kind of improvise their, their mental wellness. But that's something that I have to do on a routine basis. But also it's just one of the biggest things is being aware, being self-aware of my feelings and being aware of when, when are things becoming too much? 
um, and knowing when to step back and say, I need a break and knowing that it's okay to say no to things um, and not overbook yourself and not overwork yourself. Because I feel like we all live in a society where success and progress and productivity is like praised and celebrated, which it should be. And I'm grateful that it is, but there's also a certain level of rest that we need as humans and recuperation and rejuvenation that we need. And I think that being aware of when it's time to just kind of say, okay, I need to, I need to take a step back and I need to rejuvenate myself. I need to refresh myself. I think that is huge. And that has been truly very helpful for me. Um, But on the flip side of that, doing this type of work and getting to share my story and getting to talk about these things that I've since grown such a great passion for is therapeutic in a way for me. Um, Being able to share my story and then having people listen back or read it back and then reach out to me and tell me, you know, that they felt alone and now they don't, or they found something they can relate to me on. And so we have that connection now that is so fulfilling that it is truly therapeutic for me. Um, So those are, those are some of the things that I like to lean to, to keep my mental wellness kind of in check. Hmm. And so where to from here, Emma, what's next for you personally? For me, I just hope to keep growing in this, in this journey that I'm on. I really have a, a real desire to get my story in front of people that need to hear it. Um, and I pray on a daily basis that God would direct my steps and put my story in front of the eyes and ears that need it the most. Um, because ultimately what I'm doing, like we said in the very beginning, is very challenging. It's not easy. Um, it's not always fun, um, but it is very fulfilling and it's important work in my opinion. Um, so I just hope to keep keep on the same path that I'm on right now. Um, in the long term, I hope to potentially go back to school and get my degree in something in the mental health field as I am extremely passionate about mental health. Um, and I know that there's a world of knowledge that I haven't even tapped into yet that I am just really eager to get to get to touch and tap into and really learn. Um, so yeah, I just hope to keep doing what I get to do and spreading my message and helping people. You shared some numbers in, in your documentary um, that were quite confronting um, in the US, 45,000 people die per year from suicide. In Australia, that's that's about 3.3 thousand people, my, my, my home country. You share that boys are three times more likely to die from suicide. Uh, in Australia, it's 75% of suicides are men, so quite similar. And even within minority communities like LGBTQ, they're three times more likely to attempt suicide. So as you're sharing your story, you're talking about feeling so isolated, but the truth is that there are lots of people who feel like this. One of the other really striking things for me about this this space is um, over the last 20 years, there's been a 30% increase in suicides. In your perspective, in what you've heard, why is it getting worse? And what are some of the factors making it worse? What's happening in the world? Yeah, I strongly believe that social media and the modern media is really a hand in the reason why we are seeing kind of things skyrocketing in terms of deaths by suicide across the globe. Um, In my personal opinion, I feel like young people today are far more exposed to information that is harmful, can be damaging to their emotional and mental state and well-being. Um, And it's so easy to get wrapped up in that little glass box on the day-to-day. And I feel like as time has progressed, I mean, I personally very vaguely remember a time before the smartphone and before social media and before digital media and all these things. I've very little time was I around that that wasn't a thing. So majority of the young people today, that's all they know. That's the only reality that they live in. So that's, that's concerning. Um, 
because like I said, it's so easy to get wrapped up and trapped in that little box. And what's so harmful about social media in particular is the fact that you're not seeing someone's full life. It's like watching a reality TV show. You're only getting an hour of their, you know, 24 hour day. So you're only getting snippets and highlights. And it's so easy for a young person, especially to lose themselves and get caught up in that illusion that my friends always have cool stuff. My friends always look pretty. My, my friends always are hanging out together. And so you get wrapped up in this false reality that is being basically displayed right in front of their eyes. And it's also harmful to the, to the youth, especially because of the fact that, you know, bullying back then before cell phones and all these things were around, you could go home. You can, you could escape from it. You could put it behind you. Not anymore. It's consistent. It is always, it is 24 seven in case. If you're being picked on at school, you go home and you're, you're on your phone and everyone's picking on you still. And you have to see the things that, you know, you're not proud of, or you're embarrassed or ashamed of. And so it's constant for these kids and these youth, especially, and even the adults too. I mean, adults, um, I feel like there's a certain level of feeling like we need to kind of keep up with the Joneses in a way. Um, and, you know, always share our prized possessions and our proudest moments and our happiest times when that's not really fully reality. But it's so easy to lose sight of that when it's 24-7 in your face. So I think that that factor is honestly, in my opinion, um, one of the larger factors that is at play. Mm. Just to sort of come back to, to a few last points before we wrap up. If you could say something directly now to someone who is struggling with suicide, what would your message be to them? Just know that you're not alone because there are others out there who know what it's like and know what you're feeling. And I know that it's probably the last thing that you want to do, but reaching out for help is crucial. If you're in a moment of crisis, if your brain is telling you things that you can't make sense of, if your brain is telling you to take your life and things like that, reach out for help. Reach out to someone who you trust and let them know you're feeling that way. I totally encourage anonymous helplines, support lines, suicide lines. Those are great for people who feel like they don't want to share what they're going through and thinking with anyone in their family or in their life. I wish that I would have been aware that those things were around, things such as Link and the national hotline, because I, I'm, it might have made a difference. But ultimately know that you're not alone and that people are out there who can help you navigate this. Ultimately, I mean, it's just hard because everything that I think to say, come, when it comes out of my mouth, it sounds so cliche and it sounds so, we heard this a million times, but they're just, they're just such truths. Um, and I just want people to know that when you're hurting with suicidal thoughts, that's your brain playing tricks on you. And you can come through this. You can make it through this. Hope is real. It does get better. I am living proof that it does and can get better. We're all living proof that it gets better. We've all experienced hard things in our life and we've all overcome hard things in our life. And so I think that knowing that and is, is just the best truth that I can give. Um, and something else too that might be able to help is just having anchors. I didn't have severe anchors. I didn't know what it would have been like had I not been here. But now that I'm on the other side of it and I've seen the loss and the, the devastation that a death by suicide brings, I now have people that I'm anchored to that I'm like, if ever my brain tries to tell me anything or play a trick on me ever again, I think back to those people and why I want to fight to stay for those people. Um, you know, so that's a challenging one, but all of those things I feel like I would just share. When I think back of you sharing your story, for me, the one thing that just keeps speaking to me is your regret immediately after. 
and that that regret wasn't obvious to you leading up to it. It was after the event you had this ongoing deep regret when, when you realized what had happened. You have a tattoo on your left arm. Do you mind sharing that or describing that to us? Yeah, I'd love to. Um, so I got this tattoo in Tacoma, Washington. It was on a trip for a screening of the documentary. And I walked across this little tattoo shop and um, it just something told me, go in, check it out, see what, see what it looks like. And so I went in, walked around and it just, I saw this um, a few hours prior to having lunch with my boyfriend. And we were talking about just time and how it flies and how, how much growth we've had in just a short amount of time that we've been together. And then I started talking about how many years have already passed since my attempt um, and all of these things about relating to time. And so I was like, wow, isn't time such a mystery? The fact that if you're waiting and anticipating for something, it feels like it's taking forever to get there. But, you know, whenever something happens, it feels like lifetimes ago and just how funny time is in our life and how it feels so much different depending on what you're thinking about relating to time, if that makes sense. And so I just walked in and I was like, um, I think I want to get a tattoo of an hourglass. And so I saw this, like I said, a few hours before online and I showed him the photo and he was like, well, I like that idea. Um, but how about we change the, because it was just the sand. And he was like, how about we change it and put a little flower in there? And I was like, yeah, you know what? I like that. And then just while he was giving it to me and everything, we were just talking and I'm like, you know what? Time really is such symbolism of growth, can be such symbolism of growth. I mean, if you think back to, you know, your life and your past and you think back to where you are now, you can see the growth. It is evident in all of us. And so I just thought it was such a cool concept and just a good reminder that no matter how I feel about a situation or a circumstance that time will come anyway. Time is inevitable. And it's what I do with that time that really counts. And I want to be able to look back and look at my past time and have it as a reflection of growth instead of, instead of a reflection of just wasted time or past time. So it's, I know it's a deep, deep concept, but I'm a deep gal. So I think it's a great reminder. Now, Emma, if anyone wants to see your documentary, My Ascension, or if you would like to direct them on anywhere else, where would you where would you like people to go if they want to plug in, get involved, see more of your story, share more of your story with their community? What are the next steps from here? So if you're interested in learning more about my journey or sharing the documentary or viewing the documentary, the best way to go about it is to visit the website. Um, the website is myascension.us, so www.myascension.us. And on that website, we have basically a whole write-up of the film, how it was created, um, all the things you need to know about getting your hands on the film. Um, the biggest thing with the documentary film, and one of the biggest goals for myself and the producer, um, is to really not only show a film that's inspiring with a powerful message, but ultimately create more of an event. So a community event where people can come together, see this film, and then a conversation is had afterwards. So that's something that I've be began to do really is just travel with a documentary. And it's been, it's been really incredible to get to do it in this way. Um, so yeah, if they're interested, they can just check out the website at myascension.us. Like I said, all of the information about the film is on there. Um, and we encourage community screenings um, to really enhance the conversation surrounding mental health and suicide prevention. And if you want to follow us on our journey, um, we're on Facebook, My Ascension on Facebook, also on Instagram, My Ascension Movie on Instagram. And we ask that you like us on Facebook and just kind of keep up with what we're doing, where we're going. Um, I have a few screenings still throughout the rest of the year. Um, so if you're local to the United States um, and you are interested in coming to an event, um, definitely follow us on Facebook. We have um, posts about, you know, where I'm going and things like that. I'd, I'd love to see you get some invitations uh, and extend your tour to Australia. I think you've got a lot to share and, and a lot of people who would get a lot of benefit from hearing it. So 
um, I would want to put a, an appeal out there if there's anyone listening that, that wants to get Emma over at your school or your church or your community group or your sporting club, um, reach out via the website. Uh, I can see Emma nodding vigorously. Uh, Hopefully we can get you a trip to Australia here. (laughs) Yes, I would love it. That would be the first and best international trip I could ask for. All right, let's try and make it it happen. (laughs) Hey, Emma, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for sharing your story. Um, I really hope that this hits a mark for a lot of listeners. Was there anything that we didn't cover that you'd like to add? No, you, you're a phenomenal podcaster. I must give it to you. You, we've covered just about everything that I wanted to talk about and I feel really good about this. So I'm very appreciative to you for having this conversation with me. And again, my apologies for how it started and stuff like that, but I'm just so grateful that I persevered because I feel, I feel really much better. Well, I mean, I think your story is very powerful, um, and you know, I, I think that emotion is part of your story. You're 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 wearing your heart on your sleeve. You you are an empath, and I think that just lends power to to what you're sharing. So, thank you for thank you for pushing through, for for being so courageous, and for sharing that story. And I I'm sure it will impact a lot of people. Um, and yeah, we we're here cheering you on in your work. Thank you. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Okay. Well. That's it for today. We hope that you've enjoyed this conversation with Emma Benoit. Please do refer to the show notes if you require any resources or anyone else that you may know. You can find us on talklink.com.au and we'll see you soon.